The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. On September 4, 2010, when just 15 years old, Jake Miller's life changed forever. His father and four close friends died in a skydiving plane crash. Prime Minister John Key visited the scene and Jake wrote to thank him. A handwritten note reply came for the Prime Minister who wanted to meet him, away from the media. And as someone who had also lost a father young and gone on to great success, Jake credits this meeting with John Key and his example as part of what's led him to go on and do what he's done. And what a lot of that there is already. Always entrepreneurial, Jake became driven. He set goals and got them. He'd boy of school and house, check. He landed a $40,000 scholarship and then rather than take it, he took advice from a book by Sir Richard Branson that said, screw it, let's do it. And he gave it a miss and started a company that months later he was in the works of selling to the New Zealand government. His second venture, Unfiltered, sees him travelling the world, spending most of his time in North America, talking to business leaders about how they succeed and selling that wisdom to people and great companies all over the place. It's going great guns and backed with serious investment. He's even interviewed Sir Richard Branson. At 22, he's just getting started but already giving back. In New Zealand, doing fundraising for Lifeline, raising 55000 the other day with a charity dinner. To talk career, what it takes to succeed, and giving back right from the get-go, Jake Miller joins us now. G'day, Jake. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. Hey, thanks so much for coming along. Tell me about the effect of John Key, Sir John Key now, and how that helped to spur you to be driven. Yeah, well, after my father, my father died in a plane crash in Fox Glacier in 2010, and after that happened, um, you know, I remember John Key visited the crash site and paid his respects, and, you know, Fox Glacier is a tiny little town with 12,000, probably about actually 1,200 people, uh, you know, on the west coast of the South Island, extremely remote, and the Prime Minister, I believe he flew into Greymouth and drove for about three hours in his crown car down to Fox Glacier, visited the crash site, and all the way back to Greymouth before he flew back to Wales. Wellington. And I remember just being like, man, for him to take that time out to go and do that was very you know, very, very good of him. And I just wrote him a letter just saying, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to visit, you know, visit the crash site and pay your respects. And he wrote back and said, uh, you know, he wanted to have lunch, which was amazing. And next time he was in Greymouth, it just so happened he was coming into Greymouth quite a lot at the time because of the Pike River disaster. Um, and he came into Greymouth and uh, came out to our house and we, we sat for about an hour and a half and had whitebait sandwiches and a bit of a chat about sort of what my goals were at the time. And, you know, just no media were invited. He was extremely, you know, you know, it was an extremely humbling moment, and he was obviously a very humble person. And I, 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 you know, I was really grateful for you know for his influence and you know the time he gave gave me in the early days. And he also having lost a father at a young age, which 
could be such a such a setback for someone's entire life, but not in the case of what either of you have made of it. Yeah, I think um, you know w- when something like that happens, you have a choice, and the choice is either you know to let it truly get you down, and uh, and you know. I guess, you know, not move forward and the other choice is to, you know, to learn from it and I guess move forward and, you know, go forward and truly try and achieve your goals. And I, I say choice, that might not be quite accurate because sometimes, you know, people cope with things in different ways. And I know for me, of course, it was very hard, but at the same time, I remember, you know, I was so driven to get our family business back up and running. I wanted to make sure the skydiving business started started up again. I wanted to, you know, really, really help with that and get our first customers sort of back in the air doing their first skydive. So I know for me, it, it definitely had an effect where I became even more ambitious, I would say, and uh, more goal-driven. And it definitely was, a result of you know people's influence particularly John Key sort of seeing him you know come to come to the west coast and and truly help people who who were going through a pretty difficult time that definitely got me pretty inspired in those days and you were able to get the business up back up and going because it was the family business it it? was yeah and we did I think it was about a month to the day after it happened we did our first uh, skydive load and we uh, you know we took about four people up and, and got it back up and running the business was sold one year to the day after the plane crash and at the same time as you had all this happening um, from the age of 15 onwards, you also were uh, the board of trustees rep at, at your school. You were the, working towards being the, the head boy of the, the school and, and uh, your, your house. And then you also got a scholarship to law school. Mm. So having achieved all of those goals, a $40,000 scholarship, what did everyone say when you decided not to take it? I remember... I was like so torn because it's such a generous offer and you, you get something like this and it, it, you know, it's a once in a lifetime thing obviously. And, but I read the, the Richard Branson book and that was just so powerful for me. It's hard to explain how powerful that was, but it was way more powerful than, than any scholarship could be. You know, I remember if that scholarship had been a hundred thousand, it wouldn't have mattered. 150,000, 200, I still would have turned it down. I was so determined to go out and start my first business that the amount of money it was, was almost irrelevant at that point. And I rang up the Dean of law with that mindset thinking, man, I know what I want to do, but it's a hard decision. And, you know, he, 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 you know, he gave me some amazing advice. You know, I'll never forget. He said, you know, if you want to go, and start a business you know I recommend you know every young person you know goes out follows their passion follows their dreams and you know gives it a go and he said in, in three years if things don't work out you can always give me a call and I'm sure you know the door will always be open so amazing guy who gave me great advice we keep in touch today we, we send each other a Christmas card every year and you know ama- amazing guy that's so wonderful and when you were looking to start this business so you were absolutely sure to the point of turning down hundreds of thousands you would start a business did you know what business you were going to start no, had no idea. <laughs> I literally had no idea. And I remember, and that was probably why my mum was so upset. I remember she uh, pretty much lost it at me. Um, you know, she had just invested, you know, four years of boarding school, which was pretty expensive and, you know, thought that I was making the silliest decision of my life. You know, rightly so, because I had no idea, no capital, no vision, no clue. You know, I didn't have it any idea what I was going to do. Um, I just knew I wanted to start a business. So I remember, I think we were up in Auckland uh, at the Red Hot Chili Peppers concert or something, you know, in, in January of, uh, you know, 2000. And, uh, no, it, was, it would have been like December 2013. And I remember I was lying on the bed in the hotel room and I just was trying to think of ideas and just trying as hard as I could. I was like, I need an idea. I need an idea. And, you know, that was sort of where Umpha came from, my first business. And uh, I went back to Christchurch and got started. And, and yeah. T- tell me about Umpha. What, what was it? And, uh, and how did you make that happen? 
Yeah. So when I was at Christchurch Boys, I'd been running a uh, speakers program. So I'd, admit, I'd been inviting inspirational speakers into the school to talk to the students and help inspire them to sort of go and achieve their dreams. And in the 18 months that we ran that in Christchurch, you know, I invited the likes of uh, who all, all, all attended, you know, John Key, Helen Clark, Mahi Drysdale, Reese Darby, Rob Fife, Christopher Luxon. So we're talking like the most successful kind of tier one, you know, business people, sports people, politicians, you know, of the day who all made the time to come into Christchurch Boys, the school in the South Island and talk to the students. And I remember thinking, you know, this was a really powerful experience. And if we could digitalize that kind of experience for students all over the country, no matter where they are, um, that would be, you know, a great resource. And I didn't really think about the business model too much, but I wanted to basically allow um, or give the, the, the most successful people a platform to share their advice and talk about if they were 18 years old today, how would they get started? Because obviously the world's, you know, very different today than when all these people were 18. So I talked to the top celebrity chefs, you know, actors, news anchors, you know, politicians, sports people, you know, business people, a whole range of people. Just literally that that was sort of the, the overall theme of the interview. If you were 18, how would you get started? What would you do differently? What have you learnt? And then just tried to distribute that content into as many schools as possible um, around the country. And, you know, the business model was that it was funded by uh, sponsors. So I went out and sort of started knocking on the doors. And I remember I had a mentor in Christchurch called Steve Brooks. And he said, that's a stupid idea. Don't do it. No, it's never going to make money. And I love Steve because he always gives me the most raw and authentic advice. And I said, I think I can, I think I can make this work. And he said, no, it's not going to make any money. He said, you need to ring five companies by the end of the day and see whether they would sponsor this. And if they, you know, if they do, then you know you've got a business. So I started ringing companies and I rang companies and I finally found some that would sponsor it. And uh, they said that they would. So I made a start on it. That, that's amazing. And from taking that idea of distributing kind of like life advice to people moving, moving forwards, how did you then take that and sell it to the New Zealand government? Because that's quite a... Uh, quite a skill um, to come so early in a business. Yeah, I mean, so I started working on the business in January 2014 and we launched in July 2014. So that was the time when we were sort of behind the scenes, filming the first content, building the website, getting everything up and running, launched the business. And then... Only probably two months after launch, I, I flew up to Wellington to have a meeting with the, the CEO of Careers New Zealand, who I was introduced to, which is a crown entity of the New Zealand government, and w- was literally just wanting to open a discussion about how Careers New Zealand help us distribute the content into the schools, because that's their job, right, as career advice for young people. Uh, and we had a meeting, and we, we got on really well, and I think it was at our second meeting when we were talking about it, and I flew to Wellington, and we were getting quite serious in terms of what this might look like, and a partnership, and a big partnership, and, and I just said, well, why, you, why don't I just remember very clearly, I just looked at them and said, why don't you guys buy this and do it yourselves? It would make more sense to integrate this into what you do. And he just said, oh, I've never really thought about that. Oh, that's interesting. And I said, yeah. Well, and then from that moment on, literally all we talked about was that. And, and it was about a six-month negotiation to, to get to where we got to. But that was kind of, that was a tipping point in terms of that discussion. And from that, we worked out that, you know, he went away and talked to his people and they worked out that was, you know, not a bad idea. And I went away and thought about it and thought, you know, that's actually quite a good idea and decided to sell to them. So that's kind of where it all started. And was it a was it a big exit? Was it a, I suppose, for someone who was, uh, what, 17, 18? Mm. Um, any kind of number is probably quite big then. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I had a great mentor in Christchurch called Jeff Cranko, and we were talking about the number that we wanted, and you know, it was a it was a it was a good number. And he said, uh, you know, if we can get this, it will be a really good result. And I said, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, you know, we end up getting over over double that. So you know, it was you know, obviously it's uh, you know, being the government and so on, it was you know undisclosed, and I'm, I'm not sort of meant to talk about it too much. But let's just say it was you know, it set me up very well to sort of you know go away and you know take a lot of 
the time off and, you know, set my next business up and, you know, um, take a lot of stress off, off the plate. Yeah. That's fantastic. And what did your, what did your mum say when uh, that all came, came to be? Um, you know, she was obviously really happy, really proud. You know, I went over to the US uh, immediately after and spent about six weeks just traveling around, having like my dream holiday over the US and uh, just really thinking about the next steps. And, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing moment. I, I always think now that you might have kind of five of these moments in your life when you finish something and you're about to start something else. And those moments for me are something that, you know, they're amazing moments. You do have time to reflect and think and learn and read and all of that good stuff. What kind of things did the first business teach you? Because you've gone on, we'll chat about un- Unfiltered in a minute, what you went on to do. Uh, they say success is a terrible teacher, but that is kind of, it's pretty unprecedented that someone can spin up an idea, uh, get in touch with 135 high profile people in the country, get all of them to agree to have an interview, put it together, make it into a website, get a meeting with the boss of a government entity, sell it to them, and then be sitting there on a, a pile of future investable cash uh, at the age of 19 and then go, what do I do next? So that, that's a huge success. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely... Um I look back now and, you know, I, I definitely didn't expect anything else from myself, if that makes sense, because I was so determined to make this work after everybody telling me what a stupid decision I was making turning down that scholarship that, you know, to me, it probably just seemed like, you know, I was always working towards something like this. And I remember when I started, Umfa, I had these ambitions in terms of, uh, you know, what it, what, what it would ultimately become. And I wanted to build this billion dollar company as every young person does. But so probably the first lesson I learned is that you actually have to solve a good problem, like a painful problem that people have and wrap an amazing business model around that. And I think if people are, people are willing to, you know, if it saves people time and money, they'll pay for it. And I know Umpha, although it was a cool idea and it, you know, it helped people, it definitely wasn't going to be the kind of business you're going to commercialize and, and build a good model out of it. So I think when I worked that out, that was when I was quite interested in selling it because, you know, the first lesson I learned in businesses are you solving a problem are people going to pay for this is there a market for it and for, for what I was doing of course there was a market but it, you know the, the students who are you know 17 years old in school they're never going to pay for that kind of content so that was when I worked out that I wanted to move on and do something a bit different but I think um you know what I always say to any entrepreneur is I think the most important thing is you know, I come back to that, solve a painful problem in a specific market. Because if the market's specific as well, you can go and, you know, literally talk to people who are, you know, let's say to lawyers, you can bring up every lawyer in the country and be like, I'm building this artificial intelligent platform for lawyers. You know, this is how much it's going to cost. Can I come and meet with you? Can I, you know, seek your advice? And, you know, I think that's a really, really good way to start because then you can do this market research almost in the background before you actually commit, work out, do people actually want this? Because so many people go out and they build these businesses and build these ideas and they come up with an idea for the next Facebook in the shower and then they invest everything they've got in two years of time and then get it to market and then no one wants it. And then you're like, shit, what did I do that for? So I think find out whether someone wants it and they're going to pay for it first. And how did that feed into what you decided to do next? So you took some time sort out, had a look at some ideas, yep. kind of um, met some people, talked to some people. What, what, what led you to set up Unfiltered and what was it? Yeah, well, when I came back from the US uh, where I'd been sort of on the six-week vacation, I was over there looking at an idea on the food tech startup of, of all things. And, uh, you know, I had this idea and I, I'd interviewed Eric Watson and he said, look, I really like this idea. I think it's great. And he knew I was going to New York and I'd only met him four days ago and he said, do you have a place to stay? And I said, oh, no, he said, we can start my apartment. So I rocked up to, you know, Eric Watson's apartment four days after I met him in New York and stayed there for five weeks with his son, who was my age, who, who became one of my closest friends. And we went and door knocked uh, restaurants in New York, literally doing this kind of market research and just door knocking as many restaurants as possible saying, would you pay for this? Would you use this? And the feedback we got was overwhelmingly that, 
the food tech space was just incredibly crowded and it was you know in New York they were just getting so many requests and so many different platforms and they, they didn't really have capacity so I came back to New Zealand and at that time I had a library of about um, 15 or 20 kind of interviews that I'd filmed that weren't part of UMFA but were sort of more part of a business education series that I'd been working on and I had this content but I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with it I knew I wanted to publish it somewhere because they were great interviews so I was negotiating with a couple of major media companies at the time about just selling them the content but I remember feeling a little bit uneasy about that because these people had given me their time to produce this new series and I didn't just want to flog it off to Fairfax or NZME or whoever so I uh, I came back and I was thinking what am I really passionate about and I remember with um Umpfer, although we covered every sector from politics to arts to you know entertainment, um, the main s- section that I was most passionate about was definitely entrepreneurs and business. And I remember thinking that there's just a gap for you know really good business education that you know learning business fast from the best business people in the world. You know there's obviously books everywhere and content everywhere, but breaking this content up into you know really digestible chunks of business knowledge. I remember thinking there's a gap for that. So anyway, I, I talked to a lot of people in the market, sort of wh- whether they would pay for this and the fee was overwhelmingly positive and then we were looking at a way to build a good business model around it and decided that we would also need kind of corporate partners and we would also need you know a model for that so I went out and started talking to these these companies and also thought we could sell unfiltered as a learning and development tool to companies as well so let's say PwC signs up all of their staff get access and then they get access to you know hundreds of these videos of the top entrepreneurs talking about building businesses and their lessons so I literally went out and started selling to these companies before we even built it uh, and said this is what I'm going to build would you pay for this and I think we sold about 12 companies they, they bought memberships I know Russell McVeigh sorry uh, yeah Russell McVeigh was an early one, PwC, McKinsey, uh, you know, um, you know, some amazing companies, NZTE, these companies all bought, uh, you know, memberships. And uh, that sort of gave me a lot of confidence to go out and invest some money into it and get started. When you, let's say you get on the phone to McKinsey and company, <laughs> you say, hello, uh, hello, people. Um, I have a product that doesn't exist, which is interviews with uh, mainly New Zealand business people, um, would you pay a membership for all of your people to uh, access this content that doesn't exist? And they, who are a company that kind of trades and research and the ability to kind of like analyse things, they just say, sure, how does that go? How do you make that happen? Yeah, I remember I had quite a funny meeting with McKinsey because I met with the CEO in New Zealand and uh, I was talking about the price point. At that stage, we had no idea what to charge for this. And I was thinking, oh, for a company that's, you know, zero to 50 staff, you know, maybe $1,000 a year or something like that. So, you know, we weren't thinking huge amounts of money at that stage. And I went and had a discussion with him and I was like, oh, so it's going to be about $995. And he's like, okay, cool. And he's like, so per person. I was like, oh, no, that's for the year. And he was like, oh, okay, that's totally fine. And he was he was about to sign for per person $1,000. <laughs> and they had about 50 people in New Zealand. And I was like, damn, that was an expensive mistake. Um, but, you know, to answer the question, I think when I went out, um, I was very prepared in terms of what we were going to build and I know I had a very in-depth kind of you know the equivalent of an investment deck but a sales sort of proposal where I had the photos of all these interviewees I'd done I had the product so I was literally you know I mentioned the 20 or so interviews I had we edited it down to you know five minute videos which showed you know some of the best bits of advice and we got the platform mocked up so we could take take in you know screenshots and say this is exactly what we're building this is how it's going to work you know if you're an early adopter this is what you get so we made it very real to them and you know obviously track records always helpful so they had just seen that I build and sell this business so they're like okay he's 
probably going to deliver on this. Uh, and, you know, the fact that, you know, I, was, I think I was 20, 21 years old at the time or 20 years old, the fact that, um, you know, actually I was 19 at the time, the fact that I was 19 didn't actually really matter because they could see exactly what I'd done, what I'd done before. In fact, was it a door opener? Was it you've got to meet this young person who's really dynamic and, uh, you, you know, not your average fellow? Yeah, definitely a door opener, I think. Um, you know, I think uh, in business, I, I, I've definitely found that being young has been really, really helpful. There's few times in business where it hasn't been, you know. People want to meet you if you're young and you're ambitious and you've got this idea and, you know, they... they they get excited about that. And I know in my early days, certainly a lot of doors were open because of that. If I think about the, you know, 400 odd interviews I've done now with, you know, some amazing people around the world, uh, I don't think I would have gotten many of those if I sort of was knocking on the door going, hey, this is what I'm doing. I've got this idea, you know, and I'm, I'm 40 years old. Let's just say, you know, I, I don't think I would have got the early interviews because the whole dream was built around, you know, helping young people. And, and I think that was that was really powerful. In saying that, I think over time that becomes less of a factor. Track record then, you know, becomes the most important thing, and you know, age is, is kind of becomes a, a lot a lot less relevant. And how did you take this idea of unfiltered that you started out with the the kind of corporate sponsorship to uh, the, the corporate purchasing to know that um, it was going to uh, solve a problem for for these businesses? How did you then take that and scale it and grow it? Um. Well, the first thing we did is so we worked really hard on building an amazing platform that was, you know, um, you know, that people really wanted to use and, and had amazing content on it. And then probably to, to scale it, what we did is just a lot of hustle and a lot of assistance, to be honest. Like we, we worked out the companies we wanted to sell to, the, the partnerships we wanted, and then we just worked as hard as we possibly could to sell as many of these memberships as possible. And if I look back at our first year, you know, we did actually really, really well and financially for a business that was one year and we didn't have to raise capital. We bootstrapped it for a year. I think I only put in something like $25,000, which was repaid to me within the first two months because we, you know, we got these partnerships. And that's one thing that's great about these media companies and businesses like this because we were able to sell experience so the partnerships we had, uh, you know, I can't remember the ones we had start to start with, but Bell Gully was one, NZTE was another, PwC was another. So we had these amazing companies sponsoring us, getting their brand over all of our videos from day one. And these companies, you know, were paying, you know, very decent amounts of money, you know, some of them up to, you know, $60,000 in cash. And that was generally paid maybe in two payments. So when you're a startup and you're getting these huge lumps of cash and you've only got two people at this stage, mm. you don't need to go out and raise capital because that allows you to, you know, build your company off that. So that those sort of initial cash injections were so, so helpful. And that partnership model was was great. Although I'd say over time, one thing you have to be careful of is like you've got to work out how you're going to build this a really scalable business and it's not going to be off the back of commercial partnerships if that makes sense so we did a lot of partnership deals and then realized that they were taking up a lot of our time so we, we worked really hard on kind of providing an amazing partner experience but not tailoring everyone super specifically because it just became too hard to manage them all and you know sometimes that would fall over we weren't doing a great job at certain points so we've tried to make it so you know we're providing an amazing partner experience and we've worked out truly what they want in a commercial partnership um, so that was kind of how we did it from the start. And then we just hustled as hard as we could to sell business memberships, sell our B2C individual memberships. And, and yeah. How do you then take it to a larger scale? So you move from that business to business approach yep. to a business to consumer approach. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the major transition we've been through in the past like five months now. And we we decided to hit B2B on the head and actually get rid of it altogether. So we still have partners, uh, but we don't sell to a company anymore for their staff to access the content. And the reason that was is because 
going into the US, which has, you know, 320 odd million people compared to 4 million people here, we were working out exactly who we target, if that makes sense, who was unfiltered for. And we decided based on, you know, who was our most passionate customers, that's the hustling, hungry entrepreneur sitting in a garage trying to build his or her, you know, first startup who wants to learn, learn as fast as possible from the best people in the world. And the content you produce for that person is very different to the content you're producing for a middle manager sitting at BNZ wanting to learn about leadership and corporate development. And the big companies we worked out wouldn't be wanting to pay for kind of the super entrepreneurial advice. Uh, And that they're just different markets. So we thought we could do both, but then our messaging comes a bit sort of confused, who is unfiltered for, and we ultimately decided that we are for entrepreneurs. So we decided to to, to knock the kind of corporate approach on the head and laser focus on that market. Uh, So that was the the decision. And then it became about making the platform as B2C friendly as possible. So, you know, originally our subscriptions were six months or 12 months for any individual so all of a sudden it was netflix you know sign up it's 14.95 a month cancel any time you know a super easy model for people to, to subscribe to you know high trust um and that was kind of the, the major transition we made and then just made every decision for the b2c customer uh and so netflix you mentioned there which is uh, a great comparison it's all about the content so yep. when you're looking for america how do you make sure you've got the content that an American entrepreneur is going to be interested in? How do you get those big American names? Yeah, that's definitely been hard. Um, and there's no denying that. And I would say if there's one word, it would definitely be persistence. You know, I know I've, so that's my job in the business is getting these interviews, is tracking down who to interview, trying to secure the interview, schedule it, film it, et cetera. And it's a process, you know, it's like, well, sometimes email someone 20, 30 times before we actually get the interview. And I know I've got an interview coming up soon with uh, Sarah Blakely, who was the, you know, the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world, founder of Spanx, an amazing entrepreneur. And I think I've probably emailed her maybe 30 times so far. And then we got an introduction through someone else we interviewed and she said she'd do it straight away. Previously, I'd never heard back. So, and that's not because she's being rude or not replying. It's just that she's probably not even seeing it. You know, these people get emailed so much and there's so many different channels that if it comes through the right person or it's the right introduction or, you know, maybe you just follow up that one more time and then that's the time they're going to reply because they're going to finally give in to that, you know, that passionate kid who just wants the, just wants the hour long interview. So it's literally sitting in front of my computer all day long, typing emails, following people up every four days I send follow-ups um and you know I I generally will get maybe uh, if I send 100 emails maybe 10 would reply on the first one uh on the second follow-up maybe it'd be another five third follow-up maybe another five it's generally about the fourth follow-up where you actually start getting quite a few emails back because people I think to that stage are like this guy's not going to give in until I give a response and then people hate saying no especially when you make the request really easy uh so I think if you follow up enough you're going to annoy them enough that they're going to work out they have to reply either yes or no and then when they make the decision yes or no it's generally yes and how do you go about with these people who are business people so they're they're about the money they they know about their value as well and you're selling it as part of a commercial product and they're kind of lending their um trade secrets and Mm. their brand Mm. and stuff to you to then on sell yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, we we could commercialize it in other ways. You know, every media company has their own unique model in which they commercialize content. And for us, we don't have long form kind of ads at the start of every interview where we're promoting other people's products. You know, we try and make it as, as user friendly as possible. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a subscription. And I think people, people just understand that in today's day and age, you have to, you know, media is changing so fast and that people are experimenting with unique models. And I think in the 
you know, 200, 300 odd interviews I've done for Unfiltered, only maybe one person has ever said that they're not going to do it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't even ask. You know, people people want an audience, and if you can if you can prove to them that you've got a valuable audience for them to inspire and educate, I don't think people actually mind about the model. Yeah. Uh, and that's been a really valuable lesson for me because I used to go in to these interviews thinking, you know, or, or reaching out to people going, no one's going to say yes. You know, we've got this business model. It's like it's a paywall. People aren't going to want to do that. And like it's just been wrong, honestly. Like literally, no one seems to care. If you can prove the audience. And then they see who else has done it, right? And we've done some great interviews with the likes of Richard Branson and Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia, and, you know, the founder of Warby Parker and these amazing, you know, iconic American entrepreneurs. And people see that, and that's enough due diligence almost for them quite often to be like, look, I want to be a part of that crowd as well. Yeah, that's cool. Maybe they appreciate as business people that everything needs to make a dollar as well. Yeah, as well, absolutely. Hey, and so when when you're looking at um, the the scaling of this company, I mean, that's a very brave move to turn off your currently successful business model um change the focus from your current geography of new zealand which is obviously limited in scale but was working as a business and then turn it all to the states how did you do that tell me about the investment that you brought on and the the change that brought to your company yeah i think we did it uh probably too early to be honest meaning that um i don't regret sort of when we did it but it was definitely very early on in the journey and that was because you know i always wanted to build a a u.s company and and take it offshore and and you know i've always loved america and wanted to spend more time over there and you know i had this idea and i really wanted to take it there and i remember um one day I went on an experiment called Think Week, which was a Bill Gates developed sort of take a week out of your business and just spend it in nature thinking and reflecting. And I was reading Branson's book again at this point. This is maybe two years after I read it for the first time and thinking, man, I've just got gotten a bit safe. Everything was a bit easy. Business was going wow. I was living in a nice place in Auckland and it was just, it was just a bit easy. And I remember thinking I need to disrupt my normal and take a big risk. And I went back to Auckland and I got on Skype with a guy called Stephen Jennings, who's a New Zealander, who's built cities in Africa and investment banks in Russia. And I was talking to Stephen and he was like, you've got to get into a bigger market. And I was like, yeah, it's a good idea. And I just booked a one-way ticket that night to, to, to San Francisco and thought I'm moving. And it was a month away. And then I made every decision to move. I, I realized after that, you actually have to have a return ticket to get back into the country but I made a decision to move to, to America on the spot and when I say move uh, I mean go over and spend a, a large amount of time over there really trying to expand this business into the US market and you know that was only uh, man that was probably only sort of six months after we launched Unfiltered maybe even less uh, and then and then just went over and just made a start. And how's it going now? Good, yeah. I mean, we're now, we've got an office up in New York and uh, we're sort of filming, from a content perspective, it's becoming easier and easier because we've filmed some amazing interviews recently and it's just getting a lot easier to secure these incredible interviews in America. Um, I think last time we were over there, we filmed five founders of billion dollar unicorn companies within the space of about a month. And these are all, you know, companies that founded within the past sort of five to 10 years that have grown to, you know, incredible companies. So those interviews are hard to get because these people get hit up all the time. And we filmed about five of them in the space of a space of a month. So that just sort of gives you an idea of like the access that we're getting, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So the plan is to go over, um, we're heading over next Sunday and we've got an interview with Kimball Musk, Elon Musk's brother for an hour. We've got Sarah Blakely, who I mentioned. We've got, um, you know, Brad Keywell, who's founded, you know, co-founded Groupon, Uptake, many billion dollar companies. So we do have some incredible interviews coming up and it's just becoming easier to get these interviews, which is awesome. Tell me about access, because in many ways what you're doing here is the same thing you were doing at Christchurch Boys High, where you're providing 
access to other people, to the most inspirational and interesting people that you can kind of get hold of. What, what did those first kind of times of just jumping on the phone and trying to call people or just reaching out and trying to call people, what did that teach you and what are you still doing now? Yeah, I mean, if I look back to the very early interviews we had, it was so hard. Uh, you know, very few people... It wasn't that they weren't willing. It was more just that, what do you show them? You're like, this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm trying to achieve. And, you know, everybody's getting hit up for interviews. Everybody wants to interview, you know, these really successful people. And, you know, they have to choose what they say yes to. And when you've got nothing to really show them, it's so easy to say no to it. Uh, But we got our first few through, you know, relationships, persistence. I mentioned the speakers program I ran at the school. That was so helpful to go into Oomph because so many of those people I'd built relationships with. So I was able to pick up the phone to, you know, Don Brash and Reese Darby and all these people and say, look, can I just do another interview of you to digitalize what we did at school? And all those people said yes. So that provided me with kind of my initial base. And then it became about, it's so much easier to get these interviews. So if I had interviews, for example, with Elon Musk, Oprah, you know, um, you know, all these, Jeff Bezos, all these amazing people, and then, and then went into the US now with like another 10 Bransons on the site, we could probably pretty much get anyone we want because everybody wants to be in that company. And it literally is, I think, that easy quite often as people want to be in the, the company of other influential business people. And if you can show them, you know, and, you know, show them that other people are signing up to this. I know in New Zealand now, you know, there's very few interviews that we that we haven't been able to get. You know, if we approach people that they generally really want to be a part of it, they generally know about us already, and it's you know we don't have to do the big spell as to why they should do it anymore. We just say, look, we're unfiltered. This is you know what we do. Do you want to be a part of it? And generally, it's a yes. So I think that's what we're building towards in the US, and it's all about you know track record. It's all about viewership. It's all about who who else is doing it. Is it reputable? All the, all those things. They say you should never meet your heroes, but you've uh, you know Richard Branson who at two times has been a real uh, turning point for you through his book. Mm. You went on and met and interviewed him. What was that like? It, it was amazing, you know, incredibly. I would say going into it, and if there was one surprise, it wasn't necessarily a bad surprise. You know, I expected probably someone who was a lot maybe larger than life and sort of loud and sort of in your face and sort of, you know, you see this amazing entrepreneur jumping off buildings and doing all these flying around the world in hot air balloons, and you you instantly assume his personality as somebody who's the, who's pretty crazy, who's pretty in your face, who's kind of extremely extroverted. Uh, whereas I'd say it's almost the opposite. He's very quite introverted and a very humble person and very personable and kind of listens really carefully. And, you know, he's somebody who was a lot quieter than I expected, but definitely probably more engaging. So, you know, it definitely wasn't disappointing. It was just a bit different to what I expected. And, you know, I, I, I've caught up with Richard uh, a couple of times since then. And, you know, we try and keep in contact on email and, you know, he's obviously an amazing entrepreneur, obviously very busy doing some big things around the world, but he's somebody I still and always will have enormous respect for. And how do you maintain these relationships? Because you've you kind of mentioned people like Stephen Jennings, who is um, an enormous figure, uh, like kind of a man of mystery. He's done so many cool things and is quite uh, inaccessible to the New Zealand media and, um, you, you know, is playing on quite a bigger stage and you're Richard Branson's and all of these figures. How do you make and maintain these relationships? Um, that's a great question. I think probably the first thing is just by being genuine and not actually you know, I think people don't see us as a threat. And the reason is, is because we would never want to publish something that they're not proud of. We would never, ever, ever want to put someone in a difficult position who we interview because we don't consider ourselves a media company. It is about learning. It's about education. We consider ourselves an ed tech company. And we always say to our interviewees, look, if you want the questions in advance, sure, we'll supply them. If you want, you know, to have the final approval of the interview, sure, you can have that. You know, we never, never would want to put them in a difficult position. And I think that people trust us due to that. And I know... 
you know, in the case of people like Stephen Jennings, you know, how do I maintain the relationships? I think just obviously in any given year you meet so many people and you can't keep in touch with everybody but the people that we do keep in touch with generally people who have you know showed a lot of interest in us and we've been interested in what they're doing and we just got on really well during the interview and we just make an effort so I was up in London recently and just sent Stephen a note and just said look it'd be great to catch up and went out to his house and had lunch with him and his wife and you know there's a lot of people we keep in touch with and you know we try and um, as unfiltered we try and run sort of a bunch of parties every year where we invite every single interviewee we've ever interviewed along um, and try and build the community community and facilitate connections and community within our own community um, if that makes sense so we, we do put a lot of effort into that because I think the network I hate that word but kind of the network we've kind of built is, is, is obviously very big and there's obviously a lot of you know influential amazing people in that and we'd like to facilitate you know those people to talk and meet with each other as well. I'd like to ask you a couple of the questions that that you've asked people uh, in Umfer and across the way as well yep. like um what what do you wish you'd known earlier? What do you wish you could um, tell, maybe not you at 18, but your average 18-year-old? Um, I think probably the most important thing is just be a little... What I'd say to your average 18-year-old is it's okay to be a bit disobedient. I think the world that we live in is kind of you're almost expected to follow a certain career pathway and you're meant to go to, you know, go to university and, and, you know, finish school and get the highest grades you can and then get your degree. And even if you want to start a business, get the degree because when, you know, that's security and you know, once you've got that, it becomes, you know, you've got always got that to fall back on like bits of advice like that that are thrown around by every single person almost, particularly schools. And it's very easy for young people to kind of feel like they have to do this because that's what the school's telling them to do, their parents, the system in general. I always say like, be disobedient. Just if you want to be an actor and go to LA and you know give it a crack, just jump on the plane and go and do it. You know, I know that sounds like a, a you know a difficult for some people to do, and it is. But you know, if you if you're passionate enough about something, I always just say go out and do it. So when it, whenever I talk to young people, I say like be disobedient. Actually, try not to always listen to instructions because people are often telling you what they've done themselves. They'll say you know, and maybe I'm guilty of that sitting here now, <laughs> you know, giving this advice. But people will often say you know do this because this is you know what I did. And I certainly know when I made that decision to I was trying to toss up the scholarship decision. You know, my headmaster at the time really wanted me to go to university, and you know, he even said like you know this is what I've done. And this is you know how I've you know turned out I'm headmaster of the school and I did this and he was sort of telling me about his whole story and you know obviously a great guy but it was very much based off his own experiences and I think people are generally guilty of that as sort of giving advice based off their own experience so I always say to young people be disobedient follow your dreams do the crazy thing and actually just don't worry about what your parents say if, if you piss off your mum and dad you know at the end of the day you know it's your life um, so you have to make those decisions for yourself. Do you have words that you live by, like mottos or things you tell yourself when things get tough? Um, probably the, f- the main one is just, the I think it's an old Disney phrase, keep moving forward. Um, you know, I think that's the most important thing because, you know, entrepreneurs and people in general have, you know, life's a roller coasters that you're sort of up and down all the time and it's so easy to want to quit when you're, at, you know, at the bottom of that journey. Um, but if you just take one more step every day by day, hour by hour, um, you know, make that next call, send that next follow-up email, you know, it will get easier. And I think that's so, so important for people is just keep moving forward, don't give up. You know, I know that's cliche, but, you know, I think just you have to just keep one foot in front of the other at all times. 
there's one I like that's a bit like that, which is Winston Churchill's, if you're in hell, keep going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> less positive. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great saying. That's a great saying. And I, I definitely try and live by that. Um, and then that, the next one is like, this isn't a saying as such. And I've mentioned this once in the interview, but the persistence piece is so important. Just bang down doors, you know. People will never say yes on the first go. Uh, people will never help you the first time you reach out to them. When they say never, very rarely. Like you have to keep going and going and going and going and just keep at it and people will always almost let their guard down eventually um there's very few people that won't you know i've met a few of them graham hart's one obviously hasn't done an interview since 2005 uh he certainly hasn't done an interview of me and probably never will with anybody and i respect that um the amount of times i've emailed his assistant and harassed her and dropped stuff in his mailbox and (laughs) you just have to keep going sometimes as a final thought there, tell me about, you know, you're, you're already doing some giving back, which is yeah. something that people often wait till quite late in their careers to, to get amongst, but you've started doing some work with Lifeline and fundraising. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a busy time up in the US, as I mentioned, doing all these interviews, but came down to um, New Zealand for three weeks to, to really focus on three things. The, the first was this, uh, this work with Lifeline and, you know, Uh, when I learned that New Zealand had the worst youth suicide rate in the developed world obviously that's a shocking statistic and it's something obviously we're not proud of as a country and I wanted to do my part in kind of solving that so or helping fix that I should say and obviously it's a small part it's a massive problem but I think the more people that can kind of get behind it the better so um, organized a fundraising dinner and we sold tickets at $5,000 a head and we raised $55,000 over this first dinner the plan was originally to raise a hundred thousand over a year so for the first dinner to raise 55,000 was amazing and we've got our second one coming up in uh, February, March this year, we've had heli trans donate two helicopters flying over to Waiheke, um, you know, trying to raise $40,000 there, which is which is going to be great as well. So we'd love for some of the listeners to, to take a look at that. So that's definitely been something I've been working on. The other thing as well is uh, um, came back to do a half marathon. So um, doing the Queenstown half marathon next next week, which is, uh, you know, which is um, I'm, I'm excited about. It's the first time I've sort of done something like this. So I've been training really hard for that as well. Um, and then the third thing is we're working on sort of version two of Unfiltered at the moment. So came down here to to meet with the team and sort of talk about um, the next steps of Unfiltered. And we've been spending a lot of time working out how Unfiltered can become much more of a learning platform sort of powered by artificial intelligence and been spending some time with uh, Huawei down here as well, sort of talking about, you know, what they're doing leading the way in artificial intelligence with their new uh, Mate 10 smartphone. So that's sort of some stuff I've been working on down here at the moment. I see. Uh, Well, looking forward to seeing where you take that uh uh, take that next. Um, how can people actually uh, find out a little bit more about the Lifeline fundraising? Absolutely. So um, LinkedIn's probably the best way. I, I post regularly on LinkedIn and uh, when we have the details of the next dinner in terms of date and so on, we'll be doing a post out inviting people to um, you know, just send me a message if they're interested in coming to that. Um, this one will be a little bit less of a less head price, uh, a little bit cheaper than the last one. Um, but we've got a great, people, uh, a great group of people already committed to that, which is going to be great. Ah, that's so cool. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jake Miller, a CEO of Unf- Filtered. Follow him on LinkedIn to keep up with the details. Thank you, Jose Barbosa, for producing, and thank you for listening. If you are a fan of the spin-off podcasts, you can now find them on Spotify. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz.
Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.